At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Best in Show, episode 42. Best in Show is the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and KV industry. My name is Alan Messick, and I'm joined each and every week by the fearless and progressive ARBA Standards Committee Chair, Bryony Smith from Kansas. We want to remind everyone that the rabbitry on Facebook continues to be our hub each and every week for the Best in Show podcast. And with convention coming up, we've got lots to talk about. So make sure you check out the rabbitry on Facebook, like, share it, follow it, all that jazz to get everyone on the same page and sharing those links from our past episodes. We've got at this point over 40 episodes from the Best in Show podcast and loads more coming. So the Best in Show podcast continues to have links to all of our previous and current episodes on Facebook. And you can also submit your reviews to our podcast, which we absolutely love. And we do read those on our podcast, whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Audible, the Best in Show podcast is on it. Your five-star ratings and comments do mean the world to us. And like I said, we love reading them and sharing with all of you how this podcast has impacted everyone in a positive way. Our uh, Sort of our dreams are coming true with this, and we absolutely love it. And uh, so, Bryony, uh, how are you doing there in Kansas? As usual, you're too kind. Uh, <laughs> uh, fair season is in full swing. Um, I've been at the Kansas State Fair this week and will be into the weekend helping with check-in with the show and with the judging contest and showmanship contest as a 4-H leader. So not quite as exotic as your location, but there's a lot of similarities. I think both of them were full of people who have a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about our hobby. So where have you been? Uh, that That is a really good way to transition uh, where I've been compared to where you are, the same kind of magic and enthusiasm is shared by these two groups. I just got back from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where I judged a, uh, a double ARBA rabbit show. They also had a KV show uh, sanctioned. I was joined by Melissa McGee from California. We flew out. We flew Philippine Airlines, which I had never flown before, and I don't think I'll fly them again. Uh, it's a very long flight, which is normal, but uh, those seats, man, I woke up. My tailbone was burning at one point. That 12-hour that flight is a lot. And, uh, yeah, and then they have a very strange airport in Manila where everything gets kind of 
rummage through three or four times and it's a pain. But once I got to Malaysia, yeah, we had a great time. There was uh, about a hundred rabbits in the sanctioned ARBA rabbit show. And Melissa judged about 50 cavies in the, the cavie show. And she remarked that the cavie quality was excellent amongst all breeds. She said the winners could have easily competed here in the U.S., so that was uh, really exciting to hear. I, I don't know much about cavies. Of course, they are, are, are part of our organization and we see them a lot, but I've never dove into them like, like she has and so many others, but she was very impressed. Uh, but I think that the, the coolest thing that happened while we were in Malaysia was that we gave two ARBA judge exams and four ARBA registrar exams. The registrar exams were given to uh, two rabbit exhibitors and the KV, we gave them two KV registrar exhibitors to two KV breeders. Um, and in terms of the judge test, which is exciting, we gave not only a rabbit test, but also uh, the first KV ARBA judge exam in Southeast Asia. So there's a lot going on there. Um, it's It's been three years since I've been back there. A lot of us have been back there because of the pandemic. Uh, I was a little worried that we might have lost some enthusiasm, but it was it was in full swing. Uh, having new judges and registrars there just further secures the the industry, the hobby, whatever you want to call it, in that part of the world. And as always, we are so um, honored that they have chosen the ARBA as their model and their standard for doing things. And the more judges and registrars we put there, the more sustainable uh, Asia becomes as an ARBA community. So hats off to all those guys. We don't have the results yet from the exams, but we'll hopefully be sharing those very soon. Um, and, and one last thing, those judge and registrar exams exams were given to people from three countries. Um, Alex Ong flew over from Philippines. Ari Wardhani, who's been on this podcast, she's an, already an ARBA rabbit judge, but she was taking her KV judge exam. She flew up from Kuala Lumpur. And uh, Iqbal, who I'm sure you know uh, from Indonesia, came up and took his uh, judge exam for rabbits. And then the... Uh, Registrar exam was also given in rabbits to Yo, who we know, and she's been on the podcast from Malaysia. And she was a, she is, she and Bay are both very active in promoting rabbits and caveys in Southeast Asia. They really were the pioneers behind rabbits and caveys in that area. And they, 15 years later, are still going strong. And then two KV exams were given to uh, Ryan and Jack, who are pretty famous there for their KV. So uh, I had a lot to say about that, but I, I they, certainly deserve some spotlight and some major congratulations. That is so exciting. And while a lot of people in Malaysia do speak English, we still have to remember there's a lot of technical language that people have to learn in order to interpret standards and take these tests. Um, I'm always so impressed by everything that our international breeders do because it all requires so much more effort and oftentimes so much more teamwork than anything here. Um, you know, to do the shows like like Bay, he did some shows in the U.S., um, as did Ari, but they would also host shows over there for the purpose of giving people the experience of working for their licenses. And, you know, the benefit then to the hobby in those countries and in the surrounding countries where it's often cheaper to fly between those than to get judges from the U.S. is really immense. And I'm very excited to see that it's taking off there and that we're still retaining that partnership with ARBA and our friends in Southeast Asia. You nailed it when you talked about the language barrier. Um, the applicants that we tested, uh, the members we tested, speak pretty good English. But we have to keep in mind that in Southeast Asia, while we have 50 ARBA recognized breeds, 
when we judge there, you've judged there, we don't see 50 breeds. In fact, we don't see 20 breeds. We're lucky if we see 10 to 15 breeds. And they're, they're the common breeds, you know, small breeds that work well in a, in a more of a, an urban environment. Like a lot of these people are raising rabbits in apartments and sort of warehouses and garages. So we see a lot of Netherland dwarfs and Hollops and some mini racks. I know you've sent Dutch there. I did judge a few Dutch. But uh, the big point about that is that these uh, people are being tested on rabbits they have never seen before and unless they travel here to the u.s are not going to see them so i can't imagine taking that test having not seen at least a majority of the breeds yeah it's i mean there's always a necessity to apply what you know about one breed to another when you're working on this um you know even here there's some that you don't see or you don't see often or maybe you've not had your chance to get your hands on in your local area. So it requires some application of knowledge from one breed to the next while still learning the unique traits of those breeds. But so much more when, you know, again, there's not an option to maybe just take a road trip and go to a show and see something different. Yeah, exactly. And we spent, we had like a study session before we tested on Sunday and we all got together in a sort of a hotel room and we studied for six hours um, between the, the registrar and judge applicants. And, you know, it, like words like frosty when describing the, the fur and color of a, of a Blanc de Hoto. It's like, I don't even know how to describe that in my own country. <laughs> now I've got to tell you guys. And uh, this is what I this is how I think you should remember it. And, and that was just one example of, of 50 breeds that have unique terminology and language that uh, unless you see it, man, or better yet, raise it, it's going to be really hard to grasp. So super proud of those guys. Yes, that is exciting. I can't wait to hear how they did and to see some new licenses awarded there, which will help their shows to proliferate. Heck yeah. Well, speaking of big shows coming up and excitement, we are on the heels of the 99th ARBA convention, which will be held October 29th through November 2nd in Reno, Nevada. And uh, I'll be there. Are you going to be there? Of course I'll be there. <laughs> I am driving <laughs> out. Uh, over, it, right? It's a two-day drive both ways, but I will be there. I would not miss it. I can't wait to see you there and so many others. As we call it every year, it's our big family reunion. And this year, we have a sort of a, a first-of-its-kind theme and it's uh, in the honor of the cavey, as we talked about a little bit ago that's going on in Malaysia. Caveys are a big deal here. So the convention theme is luck be a cavey. And if you've been to Reno or know about Reno or you know about Nevada, it's a gambling or gaming kind of state. So it's a very cool logo that we've got going, luck be a cavey. You can find out more information on ARBA convention at luckbeacavey.com. And you can order your ARBA convention catalog, whether you get the hard copy or the immediate e-version, they are available now for $25 and you can order them through the website again, luckbeacavy.com. Um, this year, going with that KV theme, we dedicated the convention to two very uh, influential KV members. That's Sarah and Joe Buchanan from California. And uh, as part of our history segment for this episode, I want to talk a little bit about them because I know them pretty well. And uh, while I don't raise KVs, I see the, the impact that they have on the KV industry within the ARBA. Uh, Sarah and Joe met in the 1980s, and they met because of KVs. Uh, in fact, Joe's aunt was a licensed ARBA KV judge. And they got together and in those early days, were early members of the Golden State KV Breeders Association, which is a pretty uh, mega club here on the West Coast. They put on not only loads of specialty shows with KVs, but also KV Nationals. In fact, Sarah and Joe are the chairs of the upcoming 
2023 ACBA, that's American Cavey Breeders Association National Show, which will be held in Northern California in the spring of 2023. Uh, but their involvement doesn't uh, begin with, with stuff today. They've been, they've been working since their early years. In the 1990s, Sarah got her ARBA KV judge license, and she is ARBA judge number 742. She is the current president of the ACBA, and she's pledged many, many years to not only the ACBA, but the ARBA Standards Committee and the Standard of Perfection. In 2019, Sarah and Joe finalized the acceptance of the otter variety across all KV breeds through their successful presentation of Otter American KVs. In 2019, Sarah was invited to judge KVs at the Real London Show in England. This is a five-star championship KV show, and it's really esteemed as a, a leading small animal and small livestock event in southern England. And uh, when she got back, she said there were just few words to describe the honor to her as, as an ARBA judge to be able to judge KVs in the United Kingdom and it was even more special for Sarah because she was actually born in England. While she spent most of her early days here in the U.S., she she is a, she is a Brit at heart. So, major congratulations to those breeders. Every year, the convention is dedicated to one or two, or sometimes three, you know, outstanding members of the the region that that convention is held in. And, and we were very very proud to uh, dedicate this convention to both Sarah and Joe Buchanan. So, if you don't know them, I encourage you to to meet them this year in Reno, they will be busy as always doing the things that they do best. And that's helping and promote the KV and rabbit fancy, whether it's through the ACBA or the ARBA. Uh, and, you know, convention is coming up. We love convention and you and I never, ever get out of the showroom. But for those guests that are traveling across the country, Reno is kind of a cool location. It's the second time the ARBA convention has been held in Reno, Nevada. And second time it's ever been held in Nevada, let's face it. Um, but there's a lot of history there. There's um, not only you know, downtown Reno, I mentioned kind of the gaming and the, the hotel and casino lifestyle. But if you get outside the city, there is so much history. And of course, there's beautiful Lake Tahoe, which is on the, the border of California and Nevada. It's a very quick drive up the mountain. It's absolutely gorgeous. And this time of year, we shouldn't have snow, at least uh, in the Reno area, but we might have a little bit of snow over the passes. Um, I hear you've done some touring of, of Reno and some history. You want to talk about that? I did. Um, after West Coast Classic this year, I had kind of a late afternoon Monday flight. So I had some extra time and my friend Cassie came and picked me up and took me to Virginia City. So first of all, being a Kansan, I was really fascinated with it being sunny and warm in Reno and snowing in Virginia City because the difference in elevation. That's not really something that happens here. Um, but we drove up and we had lunch at a little cafe. There are several shops kind of along the main street in Virginia City, which is still pretty small and feels, you know, kind of close and, you know, like not like an overrun tourist attraction. It's small. It's accessible. Um, one we went into that we both really liked was a rock shop. They had rocks from all over the world and different minerals and gemstones and things. Um, and then we went to the Washoe Club and Haunted Museum. It is an old saloon um there was a millionaire's club held there it is supposedly haunted we learned a little bit about that and some of the history there part of it was used as a crypt at one point um it was fun it was creepy uh it was really cool it was a neat bit of history i would really recommend that to anyone um if you're able to go if you have some free time when you're there which like you said we don't really have but <laughs> we realized that a lot of, for a lot of people sightseeing is a big part of the week so that would be one that i would recommend for your list 
Alan, I can't think of anything more peaceful than sitting down after all the chores are done and the animals are fed and just watching them eat and listening to them thrive. Yeah, Bryony, that is a rabbit keeper's sign of peace and tranquility. Clean cages full of happy rabbits. Of course, having well-designed cages makes a huge difference too, and I don't think there is a rabbit raiser alive that doesn't yearn to have a rabbitry full of KW Advanced Design cages, feeders, and nest boxes. That little blue nameplate with a KW Bunny logo is how I always can tell those that take care of their animals seriously. KW cages are the highest quality you can get. They've been around for more than 45 years and led the industry in some of the most innovative designs and highest quality hands craftsmanship made here in the United States. And right now, if you go to kwcages.com and use the promo code THERABITRY, you can get $10 off your orders over $75. And if you're coming to convention, the KW Cages booth will be equipped there with your pre-orders. So if you order your convention supplies ahead of time, they will bring it there to the show with no delivery charge, and you can pick them up there and then not have to pack it all away in your bag uh, with everything else that you've got to remember. So get your orders into kwcages.com. Don't forget to use the promo code THERABITRY and save $10 on orders over $75. In episode 42, we do a brief spotlight with ARBA judge Maddie Pratt from Michigan. Maddie has been involved in rabbits for more than 20 years, and in 2002, she attended her very first ARBA convention and was crowned ARBA princess. She's raised a number of breeds over the years, including the Dwarf Papillon, English Spot, Lilac, Harlequin, Havana, English Lop, Mini Rex, Rhinelander, and Tan. One of her favorite moments, she says, was being invited to judge the Lop Group at the 2020 Bradford Premier International Stakes Show in England, and that was a forever moment that uh, was a highlight of her judging career. As an Airbnb judge, she's judged across the U.S., Canada, and Malaysia, and traveled abroad to visit U.K. fanciers many times. As involvement uh, in the ARBA, she's certainly involved. She was a COD holder on the successful team behind the recognition of the Dwarf Papillon breed and is currently pursuing variety development for several other new varieties of the breed. And in fact, that's what we're talking about today. Maddie Pratt, welcome to the Best in Show podcast to talk about the Dwarf Papillon breed. Thank you. So let's get right into it uh, and talk about the breed intro. Um, tell us about the Dwarf Papillon breed, maybe some history and an overview of the standard. So I'm actually going to share an excerpt from Bob Whitman's Domestic Rabbits and Their Histories. So the Dwarf Papillon is native to Germany. The breed was created by Paul Fischer and his grandson Falco Frued beginning in 1977. To create the breed, these gentlemen used the dwarfs and small papillon breed known as Czech Spot slash Little Checker. This breed was officially accepted to the Book of Standards for Germany in 2002, with the following varieties recognized. Black, blue, brown, which is our chocolate, and the black and orange tricolor pattern. The new breed is for sure going to become very popular, weighing in at two and three quarters to four pounds. That's an interesting breed history. We we think of Dwarf Papillons as being a new breed, being ARBA's 50th breed and being recognized within the last few years, but it sounds like they've been around in Europe quite a bit longer. They have. I also found it interesting that the breed began being developed in 1977, but did not actually become recognized until 2002. I'm not sure what the recognition pathway is in Europe for these breeds, but it sounds like maybe it's a little stricter and, than ours. 
Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the standard that uh, surrounds the ARBA version of the Dwarf Papillon? Tell us about uh, what's important, type, markings. I assume that all those things are, maybe more. So we did adapt our standard from the European standard that's used universally over there. Obviously, we had to tweak a few things to kind of correlate more with our ARBA standard. We don't allow points for weight like they do over there. And we put a little bit more emphasis on type rather than markings compared to their standard. But overall, we want a rabbit that's posed upright, most similar to a Holland Lop for what we have here that's posed lightly on the front feet. We have a pretty big emphasis on the head shape, the ear set and substance, and also the substance and length of bone. Ideally, you want a rabbit that's upright, that rounds well, and is very cleanly marked. Overall, you want clean head markings. You'd like a nice wide spine. We've put a big emphasis on having tail color as that's something that's not consistently carried on all the marked breeds here. Side markings are still a little bit inconsistent across the board. You'll see rabbits with patches and with spots, but ideally we just want balance and something clean on the sides. I know you've raised other marked breeds in your 20 plus years of doing rabbits, including uh, pretty notably English spots. Are there uh, similarities between the markings on spots and dwarf papillons or maybe even some of the other marked breeds like uh, checker giants and Rhinelanders? Like anyone studying, for example, for a registrar judge exam, or maybe they're already currently judging and, and registering, are there some similarities that could be made between some of the DQs regarding the markings? Because I know that always confuses uh, people when they're studying, certainly me. So dwarf papillons are would be most similar to a Rhinelander or a Checker Giant in markings in terms of what they disqualify for and what markings are actually called for. Um, overall, the most common marking disqualifications that you might find are more than one stray spot forward of the midline, more than one stray head spot on the head, more than one break in the spine. Those are the three most common things that we tend to see which also tend to be a lot more prevalent in this breed than in Rhinelanders and Checker Giants. And what about that elusive uh, double cheek spot that we have to study in uh, Checkers and English spots and Rhinelanders, the same size and proximity equates to a double cheek spot. Is that similar in the Dwarf Papillon breed? It's similar, but it's something that we don't tend to see quite as often. And more often than not, if it does have something similar to that, it tends to be just an extra stray head spot. It's hard to actually get a double cheek spot. So why don't you uh, top to bottom envision your perfect dwarf papillon? I, I imagine you haven't seen one yet, but um, if you could outline one starting with the ears, what would what would they look like and all the way down to the, the base of the tail? So the breed standard calls for the ears to be carried in a V. So ideally they would be erect on top of the head, carried in a V shape. When viewed from the side, they would be open. They'd be thick, well furred all the way through the tips. As far as the head shape goes, there's a little bit of variance between bucks and does, with bucks tending to have a bolder head than does. We don't want it as bold as another than dwarf, but you still want a nice short round skull that has curvature to the brow and is well filled in the lower muzzle. Ideally, the rabbit should carry a nice wide chest when viewed from the front, and this is going to allow for the nice straight legs that have adequate substance of bone and not too much length of limb to be carried straight into the table. It's also going to allow for the rabbit to be naturally upright because it carries enough width through the chest. As far as the top line goes, the animal should peak far enough back to allow for roundness over the hip and through the loin and should carry good width to the lower hindquarter. Pinched hindquarters is still a fairly common fault that we're seeing on the breed. So we're not looking for a marked Britannia Petite then? 
No, ideally the papillon should not be posed on the tippy toes of the front feet. They should be posed lightly on the front feet. So slightly more than a Holland, but less than a Britannia Petite. So you've touched on posing a little bit, and I think that's confused uh, some people that are looking at the breed for the very first time. It's hard to do on a podcast, but maybe you could describe briefly how you might pose them. I know you mentioned the Hallenlop when you were talking about lightly on their front feet. Um, Want to give some pointers on, on where those feet should be and, and how they might be handled? So ideally, the feet should be posed directly below the eye. I personally, anytime I get freshly weaned babies out or even broodstock or showstock, I start by posing exactly how I pose a Holland Lop. Every now and then you'll encounter a rabbit that poses itself and you really won't have to do much to it because it's naturally upright, but you can also use the shoulder posing method like many judges do on Britannia Petites. That's an interesting point about how you relate the posing to a Holland Lop. Uh, I know when I judge Holland Lops and pose them, I, I sort of clutch their head. Are dwarf papillons as um, okay with that as Holland Lops are? In the beginning, no. They generally take some working with. Um, another notable fact about them when you're posing them is they tend to pin their ears back, but just like we see on Fuzzy Lops and Holland Lops, when they become more relaxed on the table, most of them will prick their ears forward because most of them do carry a correct ear set. Those are some great tips. Um, let's talk about colors. Uh, what is currently recognized with the Dwarf Papillon that you and your team have successfully uh brought forward so far to the standard, and then what new and exciting varieties are on the rise? So currently recognized are black, blue, and chocolate. Chocolates came in first in 2020, and blacks and blues followed last year in 2021. There's also a certificate of development in effect for tortoise and tricolor, which is all four varieties. Those will present for the first time this year in Reno next month. And then we also have Lilac, which will potentially be coming in. Our National Specialty Club voted this summer to approve them through the new rule that has been proposed by the Arba Standards Committee. So right now, we're just waiting to hear back from the Arba Board of Directors, which will vote in their meeting the last day of convention to find out if that will be the fourth variety of our breed. And the Dwarf Papillon has an interesting uh, acceptance pathway and history here in the U.S., they were one of the pandemic breeds. Um, what was that like to go through that process uh, with the final presentation of the chocolate dwarf papillon uh, not at convention and getting accepted? What, what was that entire week like for you? It was, it was something that I will probably never forget. It was very different being able to do it at home and out of the barn, but at the same time, there were a lot of logistics behind it. And if anything, it was even more nerve wracking than presenting them at convention. So let's talk about the Dwarf Papillon breed as uh, maybe a new breed for uh, future exhibitors and, and, and breeders. For someone looking at starting in the, the breed, um, would you recommend the Dwarf Papillon? I recommend them to anyone that's looking for a challenge and to do something new and unique. Given that it's a marked breed, it presents its own unique challenges, just like a Dutch or an English spot or a Harlequin. So it's not necessarily for the faint of heart, and it does take some perseverance, but it's extremely rewarding, and it is something that I recommend for anyone because they're small, they're easy to handle, they have great personalities across the board, and they're something that's just very different. 
And what an exciting time to be involved in a breed like Dwarf Papillons, where they're brand new, they're sort of on the frontier, and they certainly are getting a lot of buzz around the ARBA and really around the world. I, I just came back from Malaysia, and you'll be happy to know that there were Dwarf Papillons on the table. That's excellent. I know we also have a great following in Indonesia as well with a lot of active breeders over there. And it's really been great to see that even across the ocean, the quality is greatly improving and that the breeders and exhibitors are very excited about them. Would you recommend Dwarf Papillons to maybe 4-H, FFA, or youth programs? And have you seen them be good showmanship rabbits? We've actually received a lot of inquiries for Dwarf Papillons for 4-H and FFA projects. I recommend them 100%. Again, it's something small and easy to handle, and it's something that's different from the mainstream Neller Than Door for Holland Lop or Mini Rex. Um, as far as showmanship goes, they are a little bit different because they're posed upright, but overall they make a great rabbit because they're calm and very easy to handle. And is it hard to find quality dwarf papillons for sale if someone's looking to start in the breed? And where might you recommend finding uh, breeders? I will admit that quality is still a bit hit and miss. Overall, the best place to find and connect with breeders in your area or look for new stock is the Dwarf Papillon Facebook group. That's been the best way for breeders to connect and figure out how to spread stock around. And what's the, the Dwarf Papillon Facebook group called so people can find it and, and like and follow it? Super easy. All you have to do is search the words Dwarf Papillon. Awesome. Very, very easy. Let's talk about the management of the breed. You talked about them being small and making maybe make, making sense for kids or people that don't have a lot of room. Certainly in Asia, they uh, are, are a hit because they don't require endless cage space when space for human civilization is already at its peak. Uh, what size cages do you recommend for bucks, does, and litters of the Dwarf Papillon? They do well in 15 by 24 or 18 by 24 size cages, even does with litters. If the doe has a larger litter, you can move them up to a 24 by 24 size cage. And what about nutrition? Um, how much do they eat? Uh, does that vary during the time of year? And I heard a rumor that dwarf papillons get fat really easily. The rumor is true. They do get fat very easily. Um, our show stock and breeding stock overall tend to get a level half cup of feed. In the summer when it's hot, we do tend to reduce their feed a bit just to reflect the heat. And of course, that's kind of tailored to each individual rabbit. If there's a rabbit that we're wanting to show that's sitting at the top end of weight, or if it's a brood doe that's starting to get a bit fat, we may cut their feed back. Um, we didn't talk about that. What is their uh, minimum and maximum weight, and do bucks and does vary? So minimum weight on seniors is two and a half pounds, and maximum weight is four and a quarter pounds. And what about juniors? Do they have a maximum junior weight? Maximum junior weight is three pounds, 12 ounces. So they are a, a pretty small breed. Um, what about caging and special requirements? You know, like we talk about mini racks and racks requ requiring uh, floor mats. Is there anything special that dwarf papillons need in their cage or can they be on wire? Nope, they do just fine on wire. And out of the probably thousands that we've raised at this point, we've never had a single one get sore hawks. In terms of uh, breeding, what should a breeder expect for an average litter size? So we've had litters ranging from about one to eight, but for the most part, depending on the size of the doe, they tend to have litters of three to five. Now, that's a big statement because 
I imagine that maybe not everything in the litter is recognized. Um, when you get a litter of dwarf papillons, what kind of color variations might you expect? So since they're a marked breed that's technically considered a broken, just like an English Spa, a Checkered Giant, a Rhinelander, you're probably going to get Charlie's, Marked, and Sulfs in a litter. You may get a combination of each. Every now and then you get super lucky and get all Sulfs or all Charlie's, and every now and then you might even get all Marked. There's no really rhyme or reason to what you get. Um, just like in the other marked breeds, you can breed a Charlie to a Sulf and you can get 100% marked animals, but the catch with that is you don't necessarily know what disqualifications or what marking flaws could be being hidden by the Charlie and the Sulf, which is why we tend to prefer breeding marked animals together. That being said, we have been keeping more Sulf or solid color does in our breeding program. Most of the European breeders that we went to also keep those does in their program. For whatever reason, we find that Overall, they tend to throw a higher percentage of marked rabbits than what keeping Charlie does do. And for uh, listeners that may not be familiar with uh, the self word being thrown out in a marked breed, self is a solid color, correct? So you maybe want to describe what that looks like? Correct. So when a litter is born, if you happen to get all three of the marking variations in the litter, when you get a Charlie, you'll find that it's most likely going to have an incomplete butterfly. It may have one or two cheek spots, but it'll likely be missing one or two cheek spots. They typically do have complete eye circles, but they'll have white running up at least part of the ear. They may or may not have a complete spine marking, but if they do, it'll be extremely thin, and very rarely do they have any side markings at all. A solid rabbit is just like we discussed, a solid color, whether it's black, blue, chocolate. In the tricolor variety, a solid rabbit would be a harlequin. And then obviously with a marked rabbit, it'll have all of the necessary markings. So it'll have a full butterfly, two cheek spots, two complete eye circles, full ear markings with ideally a cleanly capped base, a nice full spine carried all the way through the tail, and then some variation of side markings. And just because Charlie's and Selfs aren't recognized, like you can't show them, as you said, they do have a role in a breeding program. So when registering your dwarf papillons that actually meet the standard, it's okay to have Charlie's and Selfs in the background, correct? Correct. How is the conception rate for the dwarf papillon breed? So just like any other breed, the conception rate varies. Um, if you're able to keep your does bred and cycling, it's much easier to get litters out of them. We have some does that have litters back to back, but the more that you let them sit, the longer and the more difficult it's going to be to keep them bred and get them rebred after letting them sit. Do you find that uh, maybe fat does, does that are overweight, fed too much, are they harder to get bred? Absolutely. In our barns, we have does that have a specific color pin on their feeder to denote that they need to be on a diet because they are too big, and that does tend to affect their conception rate. Do the dwarf papillons make good mothers, and how old can you breed them until? Like, is, there, is there a max age where they just tend to not have litters anymore? So just like any other breed of rabbit as a whole, overall, they do tend to be good moms. Every now and then, you may get a first-time doe that may have a litter on the wire, but for the most part, they always have them in the box. They usually pull fur. You can foster just about anything to them if needed. And as far as age goes, we still have one doe in our barn that's one of our original import does that's going on seven, and she just had a litter last month. Of course, that's not going to be the case for everything, but they do tend to have longevity. 
you mentioned nest boxes. Um, what kind and size do you recommend for the breed? So we personally like to use a metal nest box that can be easily disinfected, and we tend to use a small to medium size box. And what age do you wean the babies from the mom typically? So this all depends on the individual doe because like I said, during certain parts of the year, we like to keep our does bred. So there's often times that we have to pull a litter a little bit earlier than we may prefer because she's going to be having another litter if she's still in condition. But overall, we tend to start pulling them around eight to nine weeks old. And at what age can you start evaluating juniors and maybe what are some of those positive traits you look for and what are some of the early signs that a junior maybe won't mature into a quality rabbit? So when the rabbits start peeking out of the nest box, maybe around three or four weeks old, you can usually pick out which one's going to be the best one. Of course, that's subject to change, but those rabbits will usually have the biggest head, they'll have nice short bone, they'll have short round ears, and like any other type of rabbit, they just stand out from the beginning. Almost all of them tend to go through a phase where you just need to put them in a bottom hole and be patient, but typically the ones that you can pick out from a young age are the ones that are going to mature to be the better animals. And just like a hollenop or another than dwarf, they are a breed that typically get better with age. There's some bucks that don't really achieve their full head shape until they're two or three years old. Well, and that lends into my next question. I was going to say, are they early developers or do you have those that, uh, as hollenop breeders like to say, you put them in the bottom of the cage and you come back in a few months or a year for, uh, for a better assessment? The good ones do tend to be early developers. They can be competitive as early as 12 or 14 weeks. They do still tend to kind of go through that tweener phase when they're a teenager where their head might be a little out of balance with their body and the width of their body hasn't caught up with the length of it. But overall, they can be something that's competitive as a junior. However, more often than not, you're going to see a senior winning just because of overall development. When putting your entry together for an upcoming show or as you are now uh, at the convention, what catches your eye about maybe a certain rabbit that you think might have a good chance at showing? So when walking through the cages and the coops at home in the barn, the first thing that I tend to look at is the head and ear shape and then the cleanliness of markings. That's just kind of the basis because that's what catches your eye when you walk down the coop or as a judge when you're looking through the coops on the table is the cleanliness of markings, the big head and the nice round ears. After that, of course, we're going to look at body type. When we get to a show as big as convention, obviously flesh condition and finish of coat do play a little bit more importance than say at a local show where there may not be as much emphasis on it because the competition's just not as fierce. Do they tend to be good eaters and drinkers when they get to big shows like that, when they're out of their environment from their barn? Absolutely. We never have a problem with them not finishing their pellets. And at what age do you recommend taking juniors out uh, for the first time? I know I I often see Rhinelander and English Spot and Checkered Breeders at shows taking rabbits out and putting them on the table. And sometimes you judge them and you're like, this is way too young to compete. Um, And they'll rationalize it by saying, well, no, they're getting table practice and and practice being, you know, outgoing and, and owning the table. Is the same true for this breed? Being that I'm also an English Spot breeder, I can attest that 
you can have an animal that runs well and looks great at home and then you get it to a show and it's in that environment with all the excess noise and distractions and sometimes it does take a couple shows for a young rabbit to show off. Because the Papillons aren't exactly a running breed, even though they're allowed to move freely, realistically, as long as you're working with them at home so that they're used to judges handling them, I don't really put a specific age on when they can be shown, but basically, once you've handled them enough that they're going to sit properly and they're finished and fleshed out enough that they look to be a competitive rabbit. And this breed does not disqualify for the presence of a dewlap like some smaller breeds like dwarfs and Britannia petites and Himalayans. So uh, can a doe have a show life after having and raising a litter? They can. Actually, quite a few of our entries that we've had at the past few conventions have been brood does because no one gets to keep a place in our breeding program unless they're producing. Obviously, does are a little bit more prone to getting soft in condition and may not hold for quite as long as what bucks do, but we've had does come back out in our presentations that have been three or four years old that we've still gotten comments on. They look and feel good and are still competitive. And what about older bucks? Uh, you know, like in Holland Lops, some of those bucks can show to four or five, even longer. Uh, do you find that bucks and dwarf papillons get better with age and, and have a show career? Absolutely. They definitely get better with age and they maintain their overall condition and look. Are there a lot of points on fur and condition in this breed and can unfinished rabbits still be successful on the table? In the grand scheme of things, there's not as much emphasis on fur and finish just because of all the points we allow for, allow for type structure and markings. But that being said, as long as the rabbit still has some amount of finish where the markings are still crisp and clear, they can still be competitive. Do you find that um, the markings, especially on the sides, maybe are, are more square in shape or barred when the rabbit is not in good condition of fur? Absolutely. The color is also much more indistinct. What's it like to prepare a dwarf papillon for a show? Is there a lot of grooming and uh, things like that, or, or are they pretty easy? Overall, they're pretty easy keepers. Generally, just toenail trimming like you would do on any breed and just making sure that the coat is neatly presented and in condition. We talked about some of the benefits of the breed being small. I imagine they don't take up a lot of room in, in your car either. So uh, what size carriers do you like to use for your dwarf papillons? A small to medium-sized carrier, just depending on what you prefer as a breeder your animals to be in. They fit in anything that another than dwarf or holland lop would fit in. And currently, we talked about uh, the varieties that are recognized. Do you want to give another overview of what classes are offered and what might exhibitors expect in terms of class size? Would it be different at a local show versus a convention? So right now, because they're still a relatively newer breed and kind of spread out around the country, you may find some shows where there's no dwarf papillons entered. You may find some shows where there is a small, decent size entry. We do have a few regionally chartered specialty clubs, so there are specialty shows starting to pop up at local shows. As far as convention goes, this will be the first year that Blacks and Blues are eligible to compete for Best of Breed. Last year, the Blacks and Blues actually had larger classes than what the Chocolates did, even though Chocolates were the only recognized variety. So I think... As we get further into the breed and as we get further into their development, we'll start to see larger class sizes across all three varieties at conventions and hopefully national shows as well. You mentioned that national show. What was it like this year in Reno at West Coast Classic where the Dwarf Papillon had their very first national show? Was it exciting? How many were there and uh, who judged? 
So overall, I'd say it was very exciting. Everyone that entered was just super happy to be there and excited that it was our first ever national show. We had Bryony Smith, the chair of the Standards Committee, judge our national show, which was great. She handled the animals great. Being that she's been on the Standards Committee and seen them before, she had experience handling them and provided great feedback and comments on them. Um, the class sizes varied a little bit depending on the variety, and given that it was on the West Coast, the numbers maybe weren't quite as big as what they could have been given if they were on the East Coast or in the Midwest. But that being said, the depth in the classes was good, and all of the classes were competitive, which even if they're small, that's what we like to see. Some breeds uh, look better younger when we talk about junior classes. Do dwarf papillons tend to look better as younger juniors or juniors that are approaching, say, six months? For the most part, they definitely look better as juniors that are approaching six months because at that point, you have a little bit more development to their bone and their heads are starting to come in a bit more. And before I get to the very last question, which we ask every one of our guests, um, how could people find out more about the Dwarf Papillon breed, learn more about the standard, uh, of course, other than attending a show or going to the convention? Um, how might they, they do that? I know you mentioned the Facebook group earlier, but uh, what about the National Club? So we do have a fairly newly chartered national club, and we also have a website online. Something that's unique about our national club is everything is paperless. We have no paper that exists in our club. Everything is done online from voting, from joining, to request requesting sanction forms, all of the above. That can be visited at www.dwarfpapion.com. Sounds like uh, 50th breed is also a pretty modern breed in the way that we do things in the Bay. That's exciting. All right, last question. Uh, Maddie Pratt, if you could envision your perfect rabbit show, whether it's happened or not, what would it be like for you? My perfect rabbit show would be a single show, somewhere where the weather is perfect, the atmosphere is relaxed, and there's no problems. Everyone's happy to be there. We're all doing what we love in our hobby. Very good. Sounds like a perfect rabbit show to a lot of people. And I imagine at your perfect show, there would also be a good class of dwarf papillons to judge. Well, Maddie, thanks for joining us today on this Breed Spotlight. It's actually our second Breed Spotlight on the podcast. And uh, we'll see you at convention. Thanks. Look forward to seeing everybody there. Ellen, that was a great interview with Maddie. It's been so much fun to watch the excitement around that new breed. Um, as we talked about earlier this year, I was actually honored to judge the very first Dwarf Papillon National Show at West Coast Classic this year. And it's just, it's exciting to see breeds take off and to see people's hard work uh, come to fruition in that way. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and they were sort of a, a, a pandemic version of how breeds were recognized. And uh, that was one of the years where we did uh, Zoom presentations for presentations for new varieties and breeds because, well, we didn't have a convention, and I got to see that go down right here in the barn behind me. It was, it was a very cool, memorable experience. Never hope to have to do that <laughs> again. We would much rather do it in person, but the 50th breed of rabbit is the Dwarf Papillon, and uh, there's loads more to come with that breed for sure. You're telling me that was 18 hours of presentations over three <laughs> days, so 18 hours over Zoom. And, you know, the standards committee, everyone was a trooper, you know, everyone was paying attention, everyone was engaged and involved, the discussions were always, you know, productive, and 
but I don't think any of us ever want to do that again. It was <laughs> awful. <laughs> it was really bad. So for our education segment today, something I wanted to talk about a little bit, um, as I've been judging fairs this summer and, of course, doing check-in at the state fair today, um, showmanship and handling is something that has kind of become a topic near and dear to my heart lately. I've seen a few posts on Facebook from our youth members asking, hey, how can I really step up my showmanship routine? Um, but I think one of the things to focus on rather than maybe, you know, long explanations of kind of, you know, tangential information, which judges don't really like, I know, I don't know about you, but, uh, um, the, the breed Showmanship history, should not be 30 minutes. No, no. Um, I don't know who started the breed history thing, but <laughs> I would like to have some time with them and some wet noodles because it's, you know, to me what it's about. Yes, there should be breed knowledge, but it needs to be something that's objective, something that the judge can easily evaluate for accuracy, something that has a very clear and obvious source and and that that exists for all breeds. And so to me, I don't really want to hear anything that's not in the standard of perfection. Um, That, you know, the, the youth member can talk about, they can talk about points, about breed characteristics, and the judge can look that information up and verify it. And that's very important because if you are going on about that information, it does need to be accurate. Um, But anyway, (laughs) none of that matters so much. And, and it doesn't matter how much information you have if there are issues with basic handling. Um, Some of the things that I have seen recently um, is kind of, you know, maybe ways of handling animals a little bit easier if you have small hands, but not the best technically. And I know this is difficult to explain verbally and not showing people, but I would encourage anyone who is involved in showmanship or even judging showmanship to watch some of the judges at your local shows and see how they handle rabbits. Um, Because that will give you some good ideas about some kind of best handling practices for showmanship. Um, One thing I see a lot of, and I actually used to do this when I was younger too, is turning rabbits over with the finger in between the ear. Um, I actually remember Glenn Carr teaching this out of me when I was young. Um, and he told me, and it's very true, that when you put a rabbit or a finger between the rabbit's ears and turn it over, you then kind of twist and put pressure on that ear base. And it's painful, the rabbit, and they kick and they fight. Um, so the best thing to do is to put those ears kind of in between your thumb and the side of your hand. You still want to have a grip on the ears because that's the control for the rabbit, but you're not pulling, you're not twisting, so the rabbit is not going to fight you as much because it's not painful. Um, Another thing I see sometimes is checking the teeth. Um, People kind of want to come at the mouth from the front, and that that can get you nipped. Um, Sometimes rabbits are a little nervous when they've been at a fair for a little while. There's a lot of things going on. So you always want to kind of come from behind and um, as Yvonne, Michu, and I were talking about today, make them smile. You want to kind of pull the lips back at the corners just so you can see those teeth. Um, same way with checking the sex. You know, you see people kind of go in and go on a little treasure hunt with their fingers. Um, but the <laughs> best way to do that is to take your fingers, pretend they're scissors, and like you're chopping off the tail at the base, and then take your thumb and push back on the little triangle of fur above the vent area. That's a much smoother, quicker, cleaner way to do it. And again, you will see judges handling rabbits in this manner at a show. So that would be my recommendation, you know, not just the comments and all that, but watch the way that judges handle. Um, Another thing I've seen a lot lately, and if anyone from the fair is listening to the podcast, please don't think I'm picking on you personally, because I probably saw 75% of the people I check in 
pick rabbits up by the scruff of the neck. Um, this was everything from large rabbits to mini wrecks to satins to lion heads, heaven forbid. Um, and some of them I mentioned, hey, please don't do that. Um, when you pick a rabbit up by the scruff of the neck, first of all, it, it's never appropriate for a show rabbit. Never, ever, ever. What it does is it bruises the skin underneath. Um, rabbits that have actually been butchered after this kind of handling show handprints in bruises on their skin. When you break the blood vessels in the skin, that coat also breaks and that flesh around that shoulder gets loose. Um, we see rabbits on the table. If they've been scruffed repeatedly, we can tell because they are loose in the shoulder and they've got a break line around that shoulder because that fur isn't going to finish. So when you pick up a rabbit, you always want to come with one hand under the chest and one hand under the hindquarters. If it's a smaller rabbit, maybe it's a tight space. A lot of what I do sometimes is just kind of put one hand on either side of the rabbit, press in gently and lift it up. If you're just moving it, you know, a short space in the table, um, sometimes it is good to grasp the ears, especially if the rabbit's giving a little bit of trouble so you can kind of maintain control, but you never, ever, ever want to grab the scruff of the rabbit's neck. And I don't care who told you that was okay. It is not. All great advice. I agree with everything you said. And if I could add one more thing, it would be to practice at home. You know, don't let your showmanship routine at the fair be the first time that you're working with your rabbit because the rabbit's going to be foreign to it. You're going to be foreign to it and it's going to be very obvious. So, uh, doing this kind of stuff at home, getting, getting that routine down practice makes perfect. You know, it's kind of an old cliche, but it's so true. If you just practice at home and watch those judges at shows, take those opportunities to learn and, 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 you know, just streamline your routine. You will do so much better in showmanship, uh, all around. This is a reminder, everyone, to uh, like and follow The Rabbitry on Facebook. That will continue to serve as our hub for the Best in Show podcast. Links to previous and current episodes are on The Rabbitry page. So follow it, like it, share it, tell your friends about it. We would so appreciate it so that more and more listeners can tune in and learn from The Best in Show podcast. And regardless of which platform, phone, desktop, laptop, whatever you're listening on, we are on several platforms, and that's Apple, Spotify, Google Play and Audible. It's free. doesn't cost you anything. So tune in. And we always, of course, love your five-star comments or five-star ratings and comments. Those encourage us and we love to read those every week. And if you'd like to reach Bryony and I, we have, a, we have an email address. It's podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. So if you've got ideas for upcoming episodes, we'd love to hear about it. Podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. Com. And once again, a very big thank you to KW Cages for sponsoring this podcast episode. Don't forget to visit kwcages.com to place your pre-orders and get $10 off orders over $75. And as always, we like to end each episode with a quote. This one applies both to the um, introduction of the dwarf papillon breed to the U.S. and to our friends in Malaysia who took their tests this weekend. Translation is that which transforms everything so that nothing changes. This was by Gunter Grass. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.